us for the first time, uh, we are in just the second week of a new sermon series, one that's going to carry us right up to the season of Advent, um, coming right out of Thanksgiving week, a series entitled The Way of the King, a study of the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the lengthiest, if not the lengthiest section of uninterrupted red letter text in all of the Bible. To some, nothing more than a, a collection of fortune cookie statements spoken by a man who was nothing more than a good moral teacher and philosopher. As I mentioned last week, if that's who Jesus is, then, then we can hang on to the red letter statements that we like and just discard the rest. And, and there are movements that have made it their aim to do that, that very thing, the Jesus seminar uh, being one of them in recent history. But... If Jesus is actually who he claimed to be in the scriptures, whatever he says, I mentioned this last week, rings forth with the resounding authority of the divine. The same kind of authority with which Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to come under the reign of the king, a radical turn in direction from the kingdom of this world, trusting that Jesus' kingdom is a better kingdom because Jesus is a better king. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verses 3 through 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one pretty close by under one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, use it while you're here with us this morning. You can take that Bible with you, our, our gift to you if you don't own a Bible or the, the one that you do own is a little difficult in translation to track with. Let me, let me just go ahead and pray for us and, and we'll get after it. We've got a little bit of ground to cover this morning. God, I pray that those who profess to be followers of King Jesus, those who have experienced the new birth, that this morning they would be both encouraged as we look at what it is to have our citizenship secure and, and yet would get this feeling sense, Jesus, of where in our lives, you want to plant your flag of kingship deeper. Where in our hearts you want to do that? That there would be this, this comfort and, and, and also this conviction, this both and for those of us who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And for those who might come in this morning who are not, I pray that uh, they would clearly see the difference between what the world would peddle as religious meritorious effort to getting good with you, God, versus what the gospel would say, that that would be clear and that the miracle of new birth just might happen in this very room this morning. Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you. Uh, without you, as I say often in this place, this is a futile effort these next few moments together, um, but I trust that uh, you want to move and work in the hearts of people in this space in these moments to come, my own heart included. Would you do that? In the name of King Jesus, I pray to the glory of the Father. Amen. So if you weren't around for last week's launch of this series, I'm, I'm going to attempt to, to do my best to give you the briefest of recaps. However, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon podcast online, being that it focuses on the framing of this entire series. As I mentioned last week, one of the one of the keys to understanding Matthew's gospel account is our understanding of, of the idea of the kingdom, a phrase that shows up over 50 times in the book of Matthew. The message that Jesus made central to his ministry is the kingdom. His preaching, his teaching, his parables, his miracles, all are about the kingdom. If we think of Jesus apart from the kingdom, we miss something of who Jesus is and what he's about. Going back to last week, 
This idea of kingdom has been around really since the dawn of creation. Not only was Adam put in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, that's priestly language, guarding the, the garden sanctuary of God as the first priest in human history was Adam's task, but God also commanded Adam and Eve to exercise dominion over all of creation, to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over creation for the glory of the greater king of creation. In other words, God created human beings to function as priest kings. The trouble, as we all know well, is that God's first king and queen of creation rebelled against the greater king, Genesis 3, choosing a life of judicial autonomy, a life of self-determination. And out of that rebellion, the kingdom of this world was established. In response, if you fast forward the story, and this is warp speed through the Old Testament, by the way, God determined that he would free a new people for himself, liberating them from the kingdom of this world. It's the story of the Exodus. God establishing himself as the liberating king of his people, Israel, bringing them under the reign of his kingship, showing them how to live under his reign in the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. As the story goes, Israel, like Adam, failed to live in glad submission to the king, which is why we see these repeating themes of judgment and exile throughout the Old Testament, a repeat of what took place in God's garden sanctuary of Eden with our first parents. And so as you read the prophets of the Old Testament, you, you see this hope of, of God someday establishing his reign over this broken humanity. This hope that God will someday return to bring salvation, establishing a rescued people for himself who will live under the banner of his kingship. After 400 years of silence on God's part coming out of the Old Testament, what are the, what are the first words that Matthew records in his gospel account? If you flip back a page or two to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew shows us right out of the gate that Jesus is from the messianic line of King David and that he's also a son of Abraham who will bring God's blessings to the nations. The king has arrived, in other words, and with the arrival of the king comes the arrival of the kingdom, which is why at the beginning of his public ministry, we're told, Matthew chapter four, verse 17, and from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That phrase, at hand, if you weren't around last week, in the original language, it's the Greek word engizo. It's a perfect tense verb. Perfect tense defined as a completed action producing ongoing effects. Meaning that the kingdom has drawn near, completed action. It's been inaugurated in the coming of King Jesus. And yet it's ongoing as it moves toward its consummation in the return of the king to set all things right. The king has come to, to establish a rescued people for himself who will live under his reign. What's the first thing Jesus does after declaring that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Going back to last week, we talked about this as well. He begins to form a new people, right? Calling Simon and Andrew to leave their nets. Calling James and John to walk away from the family business. Follow me. It's radical turn and direction from everything they've ever known. The king having come to rescue a people for himself who will live under his reign. And then we're told, Matthew 4, 23, and when he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What does Jesus proceed to do after calling the first of his disciples? Three things in chapter four, verse 23. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing which the ensuing chapters of Matthew's gospel account reflect. 
There's an expounding of chapter 4, verse 23 in the ensuing chapters so that chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, are loaded with red letters because they're all about Jesus teaching and proclaiming. And chapters 8 and 9, following the Sermon on the Mount, are all about Jesus healing disease and affliction among the people. So that the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, are a front row seat to Matthew 4.23. What does it mean that Jesus went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, 23? What might the context of that message of the good news of the kingdom be? We have a perfect example in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter five, verse one. Seeing the crowds, we're told, he went up on the mountain, Jesus did, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus' famous pronouncements of blessing, maybe some of the most well-known words of Jesus in the gospel accounts themselves, commonly referred to in evangelical circles as the Beatitudes, which comes from the Latin word, which means blessed. You have this gathering of people who have congregated within earshot of Jesus, and he begins by pronouncing these, these blessings, describing the beauty of what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. Now, Before we go any further, I'm going to go ahead and give away the secret sauce this morning because I don't want us to get this wrong, get this backwards. This is critical. First statement that we need to acknowledge as we dive into this morning's passage is this. Our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven cannot be naturally obtained by any of us. Jesus would say elsewhere in an encounter with a religious man by the name of Nicodemus, John chapter 3, we're told there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God in the gospel accounts synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. In other words, citizenship in the kingdom of God is on the basis of a supernatural work of God's grace. We must be born again. It's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of regeneration, the new birth. Paul says it so well, very famous passage. We go to it often around here. Ephesians 2, verses one through three. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's using kingdom language here, describing to us what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of this world, dead in our sins, following the prince, the king of the power of the air, different kingdom, different kingship. 
And then he goes on to describe the new birth, just like Jesus with Nicodemus. Ephesians uh, 2, verses 4 through 9, Paul goes on to say, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Paul says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The new birth, and many of you know this well, is a supernatural work of God's grace by which people dead in their trespasses and sins are made alive in Christ. No longer citizens of the kingdom of this world, but rather citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So that Paul would go on to say in Ephesians 2, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow, here it is, citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Elsewhere, Paul says it this way, Colossians 3, 13. He has delivered us, God has, from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, you could say it this way. No one beatitudes their way into the kingdom of heaven. Can't be done. Citizenship comes by way of a supernatural work of God's grace made possible because of Jesus, who, by the way, was perfectly poor in spirit. He mourned and grieved the things that make this world sad. He was meek and lowly of heart. He said so himself to his disciples. He longed to see God's broken world set right, extending mercy to those in need, a purity of heart like the world's never known, which is really good news to those of us who have failed to perfectly exemplify the values of God's kingdom, is it not? He came to establish peace and reconciliation through the persecution of the cross, taking our trespasses and sins upon himself so that we might be forgiven. Jesus is our only hope for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Another way we could say it, this will tweet, the Beatitudes are not an entrance exam. They're not. The Beatitudes are a declaration of what it means for the citizens of the the kingdom to come under the banner of the king, to live out their citizenship, the one in whom we receive every spiritual blessing, Jesus Christ. They're a collection of blessings that reverse the standards and values of this world, evidencing the standards and values of the countercultural kingdom of heaven. What does the king of this upside-down kingdom of God declare? Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not man's weakness that will deceive and destroy him, you could say. It's man's perceived strength. Charles Spurgeon once said it this way, Our imaginary goodness is more difficult to conquer than our actual sin. Man can sooner be cured of his sicknesses than be made to forgo his boasts of health Human weakness is a small obstacle to salvation compared with human strength. There lies the work and the difficulty. Hence, he says, it is a sign of grace to know one's need of grace. He who knows and feels that he is in darkness has some light on his soul. So that we could say it this way, the gospel of the kingdom is not good news to those who perceive themselves to be rich in spirit. Nor is it good news to those who perceive themselves to be spiritually middle class. Not quite as bad as these people, but a little better than these. John Stott says 
says it this way in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, right at the beginning of his sermon, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to little children humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their own prowess. In our Lord's own day, he says, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were rich, so rich in merit that they thanked God for their attainments, nor the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword, but rather publicans and prostitutes, the rejects of human society who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do was cry to God for mercy, and he heard their cry. Another way we could say verse three, blessed are the desperate, the spiritually bankrupt, those who realize they can't broker a deal with God, those who realize they have no business standing in the presence of the king of the kingdom of heaven. They are the enviable ones for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and theirs is the king of that kingdom so that the cry of the poor in spirit is this, give me Jesus and I'm the richest person in all the world. Verse four, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The world, and, and we know this all too well, those of us who have been in the American South for any significant period of time, the world is filled with play actors. People fraudulently pretending as though everything is okay. And I, I would say this, if you come in this morning and, and that's the way you've been living life recently, if that's where you find yourself, you, you've got to be tired exhausted from, from the effort of trying to hide behind the pasted smile. The, the truth is poverty of spirit evokes an emotional response. D.A. Carson in his commentary on verse four of Matthew chapter five says, the Christian is to be the truest realist. He reasons that death is there and must be faced. God is there and will be known by all as savior or judge. Sin is there, and it is unspeakably ugly and black in the light of God's purity. Eternity is there, and every living human being is rushing toward it. God's revelation is there, and the alternatives it presents will come to pass. Life or death, pardon or condemnation, heaven or hell. These are the realities, he says, which will not go away. The man who lives in the light of them and rightly assesses himself and his world in the light of them cannot but mourn. It, it's really quite amazing if you think about it. To be a follower of Jesus is to have all of your emotions awakened, right? You become happier and sadder all at the same time. You see that in the Apostle Paul's writing. It's tattooed across the pages of his writing in Scripture. This, this overwhelming joy and yet this sorrow of being more in the know of what makes this world broken and sad. Blessed are those who grieve sin and its ravaging effects on this broken world. Those who mourn the loss of the garden, you might say. They are the enviable ones, for they shall find the comfort they long for in the good news of the kingdom. That it's in coming face to face with the sorrow of sin that we experience the sweetness of the Savior. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are free from the empty chase of self-exaltation. Those who are free to learn and grow because they don't think they're all grown up. 
those who are free from the exhausting game of keeping score with other people, those who are free to forgive others rather than soaking in the bitterness of an unforgiving spirit. Those are just a few of the evidences of the multifaceted jewel of meekness, which has been described by some in an effort to try to simplify such a complex word as poverty of spirit directed toward others. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary says, the man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. They are the enviable ones because they are co-heirs with the king who shall inherit all that is his. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who who long to be conformed to God's will, who desire freedom from sin in all of its forms and manifestations, those who long to love what the king loves and and have their hearts broken for the things that break his. Blessed are those who long to see righteousness happening in the world, who have hunger pangs for something better than the unrighteousness of the kingdom of this world. They are the enviable ones whose longing shall be satisfied by the good news of the kingdom a kingdom under, under the sovereign reign of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, blessed is Rome in all of her splendor and glory with her mercilessly perfected art of crucifixion. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the religious elites who mercilessly look down on others in their most pitiable state. Rather, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, those who are merciful to the afflicted, the sick, the hungry, and the poor, absorbing the cost necessary to bring them relief. Blessed are those who are merciful to the depressed and downtrodden, those who seem to live in a perpetual state of winter. Blessed are those who are merciful to the vilest of sinners, risking their reputation so that others might know the hope of citizenship in Jesus' good kingdom. They are the enviable ones, for they shall more fully experience the wonder of God's mercy toward them. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Might be the most mind-blowing of these blessings of, of all the list. Notice that the good news of the kingdom is that God is committed to far more than we are, which might be for many of us our outward external reformation Jesus, you, you can clean up the surface stuff, but don't you go penetrating into the deep recesses of my heart. And yet, what does Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is about deep heart transformation. The king plumbing the depths of our ambitions and motivations, as we're gonna see throughout this entire series, uprooting the deepest idols of our hearts, conforming us to his very image all the while, which if, if we can pause for a moment long enough to think about the wonder of that which is ours in this blessing makes us happy to know when all's said and done. Because what do we long for more than anything in this world as followers of King Jesus? It's to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They are the enviable ones for they shall see God now in the expressions of his grace that fill their hearts with gratitude and in the refining fire of his heart-transforming love and all the challenges that we have to walk through to get to the other side of that. And wonder of wonders, they shall see him someday as he truly is and shall be like him, pure forever. Amazing. Verse nine, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who enter into conflict in order to see the hope of reconciliation. Those who seek to reconcile both people to people and people to God. The very mission of the the king of heaven who entered into the slums of our world to, to see to its completion. The one who would go on to make peace by the blood of his cross. Peacemaking reflects the very heart of the kingdom of heaven, does it not? The very heart of the king. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are the enviable ones for they shall resemble their heavenly father who the Bible tells us is the God of peace. They shall resemble King Jesus who the Bible tells us is the Prince of Peace. If we live according to our citizenship, verses 10 through 12 really shouldn't surprise us as Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who understand that when you live for Jesus, sticks and stones may break your bones and words might hurt you too. And not on the basis of of having a difficult temperament or an argumentative self-righteous spirit or failing to know which hills to die on and which not to die on, but rather simply on the basis of following the king. How could we not Expect persecution as we embody the standards and values of a kingdom that's countercultural to the kingdom of this world. That it, you could say it this way if belonging to the kingdom of heaven means belonging to the king, we should expect something of the opposition that the king himself experienced. And, and, and here's the beauty of it when we face that opposition, th- there's even an encouragement in that to know that, oh my goodness, I, I must look a little bit more like Jesus than I once did. And the reality is that the opposition is really about him, ultimately, more than it is about me. Blessed are those who are insulted and reviled for simply following their king, for living in accordance with their citizenship under his good reign. They are the enviable ones, Jesus says. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and the reward that awaits them in that glorious kingdom is great. A couple of takeaways this morning, and we've already really alluded to, to both of them. If you're not a Christian, we talked about this last week as we looked at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and the Beatitudes are simply a microcosm in a sense. that They're an indictment before they're a joy. The Beatitudes, like the entire Sermon on the Mount, function as a mirror for those who are not followers of Jesus so that when you look in a mirror, you see something of who you truly are. You see your inadequacies. You see the the ways in which you're unclean. But as we all know, it would be foolish. None of us would take a mirror off the wall and and seek to scrub the dirtiness of our face with that mirror. We all know that a mirror intends to, to direct our gaze to the water for cleansing. And in this case, as the Beatitudes function as a mirror, it would be foolish for us to use them to try to clean up our lives and make ourselves right with God to present ourselves in right standing, to be a little more pure in heart, to be a little more merciful, to be a a little more poor in spirit, to mourn just a little bit more, and so forth and so on. But rather, the Beatitudes point us to the water, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week. I love this. 
coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first thing that you see, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, as Jesus is descending that mountain, we're told that great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. That's the right response to the Sermon on the Mount. That's the right response to the Beatitudes this morning. If you're not a Christian, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you're not a Christian, that's the right response. Jesus, I can't make myself clean. My only hope is for you to make me clean. I need a supernatural work of your grace. I need new birth. If you come to Jesus crying out for cleansing, I love Matthew chapter eight. Jesus says, my response to you, I'll do it. Be clean. I will make you clean. That's what Jesus does. Right? We talked about this as well last week, that the religious mindset would say that lepers need to clean themselves up in order to touch Jesus. And the gospel says that Jesus moves toward unclean people and touches them and makes them clean by his grace. It's the wonder of the gospel. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, that's what Jesus has done in your life. Praise him for that this morning. A couple other things if you are a Christian. Maybe you come in this morning feeling unimportant, insignificant. I don't know, maybe you come in filled with grief over the things that make this world sad. And we could just, the, the, the list is never ending as to what we would fill that list up with. Perhaps you come in this morning longing for something better than the standards and values of the kingdom of this world. I don't know what you bring into this place, but if you come in with any of that, Jesus says, here's the good news of the kingdom. You're the enviable one. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven under the reign of the only wise, sovereign, and good king, a king who will someday return to do away with the kingdom of this world forever so that you and I might experience the greatest happily ever after the world has ever known, to use that fairy tale kingdom language, that we will be a part of the consummated kingdom of heaven in the presence of the rightful king forever. And everybody should say hallelujah at that point. And as we wait, going back to the Ecclesiastes series, this tiny little blip on the radar between now and the consummated kingdom of heaven, the question is this. As a citizen of that good kingdom, where do you sense that Jesus wants to plant his flag, flagship, or excuse me, his flag of kingship deeper in your heart? Jesus speaks with the resounding authority of the divine, the same kind of authority with which he said to the disciples, follow me. And so I'd ask, in, in light of our time with these red letter words, and it's gonna be the same question over and over again, week in and week out of this series, in what way or ways do you sense Jesus calling you to leave your nets, to live in accordance with your citizenship as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven under the reign of heaven's king? Where do you hear Jesus saying to you this morning, in this moment, this season of your life, follow me?